There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. But what about us? Memories. You're talking about memories. Good, now have a drink. I don't want anything of his or any part of him. Except his life. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you want Played it for her, played it for me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. Waiting for a lady. Someday you'll understand that. Got some news that's gonna take a lot of attention off you and Laura. Stop it, yes, I can't take any more of it! I should be in the You know the story? My story. Maybe because he was drunk. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Well, I'll give her the message. I'd never sleep all over America. Welcome to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, a podcast discussing film noirs of yesterday and neo noirs of today. Each week, we will deliver a discussion and analysis of classic and neo noir films, all mixed in with our unintelligible banter. Your hosts for the show, Carly Street and Jason D. Morris. You can get up at this time in the morning and just be like, hello. <laughs> I remember that awful time when I had to wake up for that, that call with them Australians, and I was just like, ugh. <laughs> Oh, uh, you know, it, it takes a it takes a little bit of effort, but that's um, the 15 minutes before I get on the phone. Okay, <laughs> that's when my alarm goes off, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I did have to juice myself with my weird smoothie, to be fair, because I was a bit uh, a bit groggy myself. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, at least you're sticking with it. I guess I don't know why. I guess it's healthy. You got you guys. Uh, I remember one point you um, said you guys were kicked, uh, stop drinking. I guess or or trying to stop drinking. Yeah. Well, my mum and dad like they they drink every single day of their life. They're both retired, so they just like if they've got no shopping to get, they just crack open a beer whatever time it is. But then they mm-hmm. spend like two months where they have a complete detox. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it just gets like, dumb, I guess. Huh? we should do that <laughs> we should give that a go yeah i mean is it working out or are you still doing it or no yeah that's why we have the smoothies as well nice okay. so good um because i think in it i think in lockdown everybody had a little bit too much yeah i would agree with that i think they still kind of having a little bit matched our level but luckily we were able yeah. to go work, so we didn't just sit there all day and night. Plus, I'm with this horrible cold, I'm really not smoking a lot. So I've been trying to yeah. knock that on the head for ages. How how long have you had the cold? I thought you just got it. Uh well, for like three days. Oh boy. Well <clears throat> I hope you do feel better. Good to catch up with you though and uh I guess that's a good thing that uh, you're switching to smoothies instead of cores or Bud Light or whatever it is, because that stuff is horrible anyway. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I got some pineapple. It's like this one's a pineapple surprise. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Pineapple, the pineapple. rest is a surprise for whatever's in the fridge. <laughs> All right, well, uh, before we get into our movie tonight, um, let's, do our, let's do our drink for the night. This is something I've never had before um it's seems like it might be kind of interesting i'm not sure you know actually let me, before i do this let me look up what the hell this word means <laughs> <laughs> that 
that's very professional of you to do it beforehand. <laughs> well, I figure this has like a, this has a definition of some sort it has to, but I guess it doesn't. I guess it's just the name of a cocktail. This is interesting. All right, well, our drink for tonight is called the Sazerac. Oh. Which I was certain means something. The Sazerac, that sounds like a villain in like Marvel. <laughs> but uh, there's no other definition that I can find on it, but um, it's, it's just a drink. So the Sazerac is two ounces of rye whiskey, 0.5 ounces of simple syrup, two dashes of, oh boy, pie chods bitters. <laughs> it's just another bitters. Yeah. Probably just a brand. Uh, <clears throat> Ooh, an absinthe. Oh God. <laughs> it says if you like a drink with some bite, give this classic New Orleans concoction a try. Or oh, if you want to die. <laughs> oh. To make this drink, you're going to rinse a chilled glass with absinthe and discard the absinthe. Stir the other ingredients in a mixing glass, strain into a chilled glass, and garnish. So pretty simple. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that you just washed the glass with the absinthe. Yeah. But I guess that's, uh, we came across that before with um, Street explained it to us. Uh, I guess back in back in the day, that's how they would clean their glasses out with was with an alcohol. Uh, I can't remember what he called that. Like a prep, you prep the glasses with alcohol first, um, and I guess this will just add an extra little kick or hallucination <laughs> since we're doing it with uh, absinthe. <laughs> oh yeah, good lord. Which I don't know if absinthe is uh, hard to come by over there, but it is over here in the U.S. It is now. Um, it is now? It's hard to come by? Yeah, it wasn't like, say, um, 10 years ago. It was everywhere. Interesting. But, That's the exact opposite yeah. from here. Really? Yeah, because it used to be um, banned because of the wormwood, I guess, you know, has hallucinatory properties or whatnot. Um, and then uh, over the past 10 years, it's been they've been sort of loosening it up or there have been other recipes, I guess, of making absinthe that either lessens the amount of wormwood or doesn't even have it at all. Ah, well, like, waters it down. And it's just, it's become a little more popular out here. It tastes horrible. So, it I, I mean... Vile. Yeah, I mean, you really have to cut it with sugar and water. It <laughs> like, is. It is horrible. Yeah. Um, but I think it, I think people like it because it has that sort of mythology to it. <clears throat> at least out here, anyway. So guys, um, we hope that you uh, have the ingredients to make your very own Sazerac, which I think sounds more like a demon from Supernatural. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, drink along with us as we uh, watch, uh, watch today's film, or not watch today's film. We've already watched it, but you can watch it while we discuss it. Um, so enjoy your Sazerac. And here is the trailer for the Asphalt Jungle. Only the author of Little Caesar could tell so dramatic a story. 
Only the director of the treasure of Sierra Madre could film it with such power. Only once in a decade does the screen come up with such absorbing characters. Sterling Hayden as Dix Handley, a hooligan with a twisted dream. Gene Hagen as Dahl, the dime a dance dame who wanted to share that shabby dream. Let me go with you. Please, Dix, please. Are you crazy? I'm on the lamb. I'm wanted bad, packing heat. If there's any trouble, what good would you be? I could drive. No, no. I'm wanted on a killing rap. You know what that means. I don't care. I just want to be with you. Louis Calhern as Emmerich, the big-time mouthpiece with crime on his mind. Oh, I suppose a fellow should stick to his own trade, but uh, I know some pretty big men around here that might not be averse to a deal like this if they're properly approached. Highly respectable men, I might add. Sam Jaffe as Doc. He's got a million dollars in that little black bag, and a jitterbug cost him every diamond. Monroe as Angela, the easy-living, green-eyed blonde. Haven't you bothered me enough, you big banana head? Just try breaking my door, and Mr. Emmerich will throw you out of the house. James Whitmore as Gus, the strong-arm boy. A right guy in a wrong world. That was a trailer for The Asphalt Jungle, a 1950s film noir. Um, it was directed by John Houston, <clears throat> based on a 1949 novel of the same name by W.R. Burnett. Um, and it's the funny thing about this movie is it's called The Asphalt Jungle, and it, it implies that it's you know sort of a big city heist movie. But it never tells you where this movie takes place. You don't know which big city it is. And uh, some people believe it might be Cincinnati. Um, but who knows? Oh. Um, personally, I'd probably say something like Chicago, maybe. Something like that. I'm not sure. But the film stars uh, Sterling Hayden as our lead character, Dix. Uh, Louis Calhern as Alonzo. Gene Hagen as Dahl. Um, and there is a uh, there is a surprise uh, cameo by somebody in this film, which I suppose we might get to a little later. And we'll keep that a surprise for those that haven't seen this. But I certainly was um, I was certainly surprised to see her show up. So you're not doing well at keeping it a surprise. <laughs> I'm not. I'm terrible. I'm I'm terrible at all of this. <laughs> I have no business being on a podcast. <laughs> to do I so that's fine <laughs> <laughs> and funny enough I think the uh, the tagline for the movie is the city under the city <laughs> oh yeah it is should the be city the, under the sea should be the city of no names I guess I don't know because they never mention what city it's in and they don't really go physically underground per se well I guess they do 
for a short time, but um, I guess it just means they're hiding out or it's the the underground. <clears throat> um, I don't know. I, I found this to be a pretty fun heist movie. I think that the, the character set up in this movie was pretty well done. Personally enjoyed um, uh, Sterling Hayden's uh, performance and his character in general. I, I don't know. I, um, I felt like uh, there was like this strange kind of camaraderie amongst him and these other people that he gets to do this heist, I guess. But I mean, you know, before we actually get into, I guess, delving into that portion, Carly, I think I've already spoiled it and said it's a heist movie, but we need to do your in a nutshell sort of synopsis so people get a better feel for this. (laughs) I don't know if it will be a better feel for it. (laughs) Uh Uh, (laughs) Uh-oh. Hopefully. Right. You'll try? All right. Well, I guess you might need some piano music. (laughs) And now it's time for Carly's super famous in a nutshell synopsis. (laughs) Every time I I just throws me right off. (laughs) Okay. A beautifully planned, intricately plotted heist goes perfectly to plan until the very moment they leave the scene of the crime. When utter chaos and implausibility ensues for another hour. (laughs) Well, I mean, that is it, more or less. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because the, the time that Houston takes to lay out the, the actual robbery is fairly impressive. Yeah. I mean, you see this nowadays in most heist movies, and it's probably because of the asphalt jungle, um, where they really go into detail and take their time to let you experience the, the actual crime, particularly in heist movies. You don't, you don't normally get to see that in detail uh, unless it's the beginning of like an episode of Columbo or something. But when it comes to like a heist movie, it seems to be pretty ticked typical that they lay it all out for you in great detail. And this is, I think is the first movie I've ever seen that really does that. Um, and I don't know which year the original, um, oceans 11 or things like that came out. Um, but I think this precedes it. Um, and I, I personally really enjoyed that cause I wasn't expecting a lot of these, uh, older film, the really sort of brush over detail and, and put a lot of it. Yeah, they're a bit vague, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and 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 if they do sort of, you know, give you more detail, it's generally most always in dialogue. You know, I don't know if that's a uh, money saving tactic or lack of um, technical, um, you know, advancement. I guess maybe for certain things, time, whatever it might be. But Houston took great detail in this film to play it all out and made it uh, made it very realistic and plausible, I guess, for the technology of the time hmm. uh, with the uh, silent trip alarms and, um, you know, cracking the safes and everything like that. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the concept of the explosion setting off all the other surrounding alarms. Uh, that was great. And something you don't, <laughs> you don't typically see, you see these big explosions, in some of these heist movies where they do this sort of thing. And like nobody noticed it. <laughs> yeah. Silly. Um, so I definitely appreciated that uh, more realistic approach to it. I liked how it's like they were pitching a caper, but it's it, they set it up like a job interview. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you can, oh, so yeah, tell, yeah. tell me the strengths and the weaknesses of the plan. <laughs> well, this is where it might fall down, but this is obviously, you know, we're going to do this one right. And I thought that was really interesting because I'd never seen so much, like you say, attention laid out to to that, to the crime itself. Yeah, it, it was really a um, they they approached it with a with a realistic sort of you know mindset. You know, if you're going to do this, I mean, these are very technical skills some of these people need, uh, and so it makes sense to actually give them a thorough interview. It <laughs> um, can't just say, "Hey, I got this pal. He says he can break into a safe." Yeah, we've got this guy. He says he can drive. He's just drunk ninety nine percent of the time, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and you know, by doing that, it looks, it appears that they put together a very, a very solid team. That's, um, you know, that has their shit together more or less. They know what they're doing. They get in and almost get out without a flaw. I don't think that their, that their skill set caused any, any of what happened to happen. I really think it was just dumb luck. Yeah, because even the guy getting shot, Justice are leaving, that that wasn't something that was anybody's fault and could have been something that they could possibly have fixed had not the other stuff been going on. Yeah, exactly. So even that wasn't necessary. That, that didn't ruin the plan for the other three. No, just killed just killed one of his buddies. Who, you know, one of the one of the thing another thing that I love about this movie is how loyal these two people are to uh to Dix. The the cafe owner. Yeah, why though? Because um, Dix is horrible. Why are they so loyal to him? Well see, I don't I don't look at him like he's horrible though. I look at him like he just you know, maybe he obviously he wants he wants his good life back. Maybe that childhood life he wants to go back to the farm that he grew up on kind of thing, right? That's his whole goal of doing this is to buy this farm that he grew up on and get away from the city to get away from all the madness, get away from the, the temptation of being a criminal more or less. Um, so I, I don't look at him like he's a really bad person. I look at him like he's, he's appropriate for his situation. The dude doesn't have money. You know, he's doing what he's got to do to get by. And I, I think because his own loyalty to people He's sort of built up that reservoir of um, of trust with these people that they know that they could count on him, and he in return can count on those people. He's not very nice um, to that poor woman, though, is he? Let's face it. No, no, he's not. You know, and I think, but you know, there's well, there's I think a bit he is of a in little, his own way. Maybe he's nice to yeah. him in his own way, but actually, he's not. It's not that. Nice, but I guess he thinks that he's going out of his way for quite a lot of the time. I think it's sort of a hidden charm. I think it's I think it's the the idea that he knows he's in a bad spot. He knows he can't take care of her the way he might want to or she deserves. So as such, I think that he treats her in such a way to try to make her not love him. Ah, because he can tell that she's yeah he can tell that she's basically madly in love with him then she would do anything for him wow when she was acting she was fantastic yeah 
little nervousness with the eyelashes and everything and like cleaning up after him and yeah yeah no it was a, it was a it was a good character and she played it very well but i do think that that really stems from that sort of his own personal demons um feeling like he's not worthy and she can do better so he's trying his best to keep her at a distance but i mean let's face it everybody gets lonely right huh. everybody needs you know somebody and and that's who it ended up being for him and He's having a hard time pushing her away, but he's he is the tough guy. He's giving it a good go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, he's got nothing else to do other than that. He's just, you know, what what is his other choice? Just embrace that fact and then potentially get her killed down the road or, you know, be responsible for her having a terrible life because you're a thug and there's nothing else that you know how to do. Um so I kind of, I mean, again, it, there's a lot of um, aspects to it that felt very realistic. Um, Did his character remind you of like, I wonder if, you know, Russell Crowe's character in LA Confidential? Oh, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit. I wonder that, if they kind um, of base that a little bit on dicks. You know, I, I don't think so. Um, because there's a lot of there's there's a set of movies that um, the director for LA Confidential had the cast watch, and this isn't one of them. Um, and that movie was based on the um, you know the books. So I don't I don't believe so, but there there there's definitely some similarities to you know to Russell Crowe's character. I mean they're they're both very tough guys oh. with some sort of strange you know past whatever it might be and they're in situations they probably don't necessarily want to be in <clears throat> uh and maybe it's just circumstantial or whatnot but yeah i would agree with that i think that there's a lot of of aspects that, that sort of match and i think it's just out of um coincidental you know um time period of film the war films um you know, that LA Confidential is going to match up with a lot of elements from films. But, uh, I, you know, going back to the uh, the cafe owner and his loyalty and, and, and whatnot, he he obviously really cares about dicks, you know. Well, yeah, he gives him like 15 grand in the first 10 minutes. Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, whatever it might be, maybe he just wants to help the guy out. Maybe he's been in a situation before. Maybe he's just seen him you know, life get the best and whatever it might be. I was surprised um, when but, Gus was then the car driver because I got the impression that Gus was trying to keep him out of that life and help him. Right. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh, we need this car driver. Yeah. Oh, it's Gus. What? I thought he just shouted at him for <laughs> wasting money with this guy, you know, getting involved in the criminal world. And then he's just like, yeah, yeah, let's go and do a heist. Well, you know, it could be a couple different things and maybe like unspoken sort of, you know, um, thing between friend, maybe he he goes along with it to try to make sure Dix comes out of it alive. Maybe, maybe yeah. He, maybe he knows that they can't find anybody else. Doesn't trust anybody else. Yeah, it could be that too. Or maybe he no longer wants to run the cafe and he wants to get out. Maybe he's got bills. Who knows? I mean, Dix does ask him for money, which he might not necessarily have. But um, then he goes to his other buddy. And sort of like badgers him into, into borrowing money, which I found kind of funny. But I mean, that was another example of these people that Dix is surrounded with that 
have this loyalty to him and pretty much would do anything for him. I mean, this guy's got a family and a new kid and he's going to give, you know, dicks all of his money. And it's just, it was pretty impressive. I thought, um, cause I don't think that, you know, most people in real life end up with, uh, friendships that strong. I mean, you might have one or two, I guess, but, um, especially if you're in these sorts of situations as Dix is, I mean, I think people kind of might consider you more like a low life or, you know, not worth the time sort of thing, or you're going to screw them over or whatever. But obviously this guy's got, uh, an angel on his shoulder uh, has has done something positive for these people in the past that that make him want to help him out. Um, or I guess you could just look at it as a flaw of the movie. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think John Huston is experienced enough. Yeah, to not making like that. great films. Yeah, that there's there's some back back to that. Um, and and I guess and and I think that if it was if the film was uh, a B movie that was shot cheaply. Um, that's probably where we would go. We, I per, would probably be like, yeah, this was a crappy film. They had no backstory, whatever it was. Um, but I think because of the quality of the other directorial aspects of the film, um, and how much care I think Houston put into certain scenes and different elements that it just makes you feel like, you know, there's stuff there that we just might not know about. Um, and I'm cool with that. I'm good with that. Um, I also think that, you know, going back to the cafe owner, there's, there's a scene in the very first cafe scene, um, which really sort of, I think there's a lot that sets us apart from most film noirs of the time. This one's a little bit later. This one comes in the 1950, which is um, sort of like the maybe midpoint of noir. So these sorts of movies have been coming around for a while. But one thing you don't see very often is rack focusing in these older films. Um, and Carly, you know, that's where you're like, the camera's focusing on something in the distance and then the focus changes to something in the foreground okay. or vice versa. Okay. Um, and for the, you know, for the folks at home, um, and that's something it's, it's done to draw the viewer's attention from one thing to another and it being two objects at different focal distances makes for a very interesting shots and in today's cinema. It's, you know, quite common to see those sorts of things. Um, but, uh, in these older films, um, it's, uh, it's not seen very often at all. When you do see it, it's just like, Oh, that was a good shot. And he does it very early on here in this cafe scene where we see something in the distance. I can't remember if it was like dicks or something else, but then it rack focuses to uh, Gus on the phone. And it's, it's a very nice dynamic shot and they do it a couple of times uh, throughout the movie, um, which I, I personally really enjoyed from a, you know, a production standpoint. And they also sort of pulled a, um, later on in the film, there's a scene where Dix is laying on the couch um, at his girl's house or, or I can't remember exactly where they're at, but he's, he's laying on the couch and she's basically taking care of him. And this particular shot I found to be a little bit strange and I know why they do it, but I'm, I just figured there was probably a better way to do it. Or maybe this was sort of like a new way of doing it at the time. Um, but they sort of split the focus. She's 
further back in the scene than he is. He's on the couch, which is more in the foreground and she's more in the background coming from the kitchen to, to a coffee table and then back to the kitchen sort of thing as they're talking or whatnot. And so they, they split the focus. They basically put the focus in the middle of the scene, which is about where the coffee table is. So neither her nor Dix is in focus. They're, they're both sort of slightly soft and the coffee table is full on focus. Um, and usually you would do this to save time. So you don't have to rack back and forth if you're going to hold on that scene for a long time. And I felt that was a little odd for this movie. Usually you would shoot coverage and do like close-ups of her, close-ups of him, whatnot, go back to a full on in focus shot, um, for the master, something like that. Um, but they were trying to pull this little trick where they're both in different depths of the scene. Um, and split the focus and it just, it, that was the one shot in the movie that I thought was a little strange that they, they chose to do that opposed to shooting coverage or whatnot. And, and maybe for the time, maybe it worked because, you know, just like VHS, you know, there's a lot of things that you could get away with that you can't get away with now on a Blu-ray because you can see everything clearly. And on a VHS tape, you couldn't do that. Maybe that was sort of the case with film back then. It was, it was more forgivable. Um, than these remastered, cleaned up versions where you can really see everything. But that coupled with a lot of these uh, fantastic, I don't want to call them landscape shots, but they really are their landscape shots of this city, of this asphalt jungle. <laughs> um, this place, this mystical place that we don't know. Yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> and um, Houston and his, his director of photography do a really great job of of capturing that, uh, you know, he's got these really tall pillars and these, I mean, it's just, it's, and it's all concrete and it just looks really, it looks really great. And it really sets the story up. Now, you know, you're sort of in this big city, even though a lot of the other locations film, maybe small townish, I guess, like the small cafe, things like that. So, Hey Carly, why don't we take a break and listen to an ad from one of our sponsors. Listening to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, the show that brings you binge drinking with a side of noir, with your host Carly Street and Jason D. Morris. God, there's always bloody loud music in them small cafes, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody wants to hear each other talk. Yeah, you can go in there for a casual <laughs> little coffee just to think. Well, I guess I guess back then, you know, music coming up was pretty big. You know, I suppose it's if the owner liked it, then it's tough. You've got to listen to it as loud as he wants. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that, you know, at that time period, like, uh, to have music so accessible was probably like a big deal and a draw for a, uh, for patrons to come to a, like a cafe or something like that. Um, I really feel like that's, that's probably the reason why we see that sort of thing. And they're always arguing cause there's always one miserable person that doesn't want music and then everybody else in there does. <laughs> right. <laughs> That does happen. I think that still happens today. <laughs> there's not a whole lot of um, jukeboxes anymore at, at restaurants, but there's there's a few out in my area. Um, and so I, I do enjoy that. I think it's pretty neat. We have this uh, – it's not an old diner, but it's set up to be old. Um, if you've ever seen uh, American Graffiti in a George Lucas movie, um, it's it's – a large amount of it's set around a, a restaurant called Mel's and 
uh, original Mel's is from San Francisco area and there's a few other locations here and we have two of them here in my hometown, which is awesome. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And they used to be like sock hop kind of, uh, drive-in restaurants. You'd pull up and then the girls would come on roller skates or whatever. I mean, ours aren't that way, but, um, I believe that was like sort of the original intent of it. And all of the restaurants are like decked out with, uh, images from American graffiti. So you get like Ron Howard and all these people from the movie. George Lucas and all this kind of stuff. And then the rest of the restaurant has got musical posters and concerts from, from the area and just different, different cool memorabilia from musicians. Um, but they have these little uh, uh, jukeboxes at the table um, that you can, you know, put your quarters in and select a song and play and it will feed it to the main big jukebox and it will either, play at a low volume through the whole restaurant or you can adjust the volume just at your table to to make it louder for you oh that's cool um and I, yeah i always liked it that it was always fun and neat um but it does it it also scares me because <laughs> i remember the twilight zone episode with uh william shatner with the little thing at the table with the fortunes <laughs> <laughs> little devil thing. I don't know if you recall that, but it always makes me think of that. <laughs> I just got visions of you sat on a table like, no, don't do it. Don't put the money in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, a place like that for me is dangerous because I'd never leave. They'd be like, we finished your food three hours ago. You need to get out. No, nope, I'm not done. I've still got quarters. I'm not going nowhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so right off the bat, I really think you can see the uh, – the mastery of Houston and his DP in terms of uh, storytelling and film. Um, I think there's like this really fantastic depth and texture to this movie, particularly on the um, outside scenes and then more to a subtler extent, interior stuff that he does. They're just, you know, considered camera tricks, I guess with like the rack focusing, things like that, or the split focus. Um, and it just, it instantly just, tells you that this is a movie of quality like it there was money put into this it's directed by a, a a good director and then a cinematographer um they just did a great job with the use of the landscaping and and the setting you know in general even though we don't know what it is and it, it it's totally interesting you know that this uh farm he wants to buy where he grew up was um what kansas or something like they say where it's at but you have no yeah. idea what city you're in <laughs> yeah or how far away he is to it right right um so i just thought that was pretty interesting <clears throat> i like bob the detective bob the private detective the private detective yeah he was he was the alonzo's private detective wasn't well the one that he like, oh, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. And he was like, I can't do that. <laughs> well, that was a great waste of time, wasn't it? To hire someone that can't do it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> he was, I mean, he was, I don't think he had enough character in the movie. I think he was in it for, you know, time being, but um, I just, I didn't, I didn't think there was like really enough for him. He didn't have anything to do. It was just the muscle sitting in the background. I like I liked him and I liked him Kobe. They were my two favorite. Ed, the money man that had all the money but was sweating all the time when he had that money. Oh, you're picking all these people that are in the movie for like two minutes. Yeah, didn't like Diggs. <laughs> really? Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of Russell Crowe, yeah, I interrupted you. Sorry. <clears throat> it's interesting that you didn't like him because usually you like those uh, down and out uh, 
male protagonists, yeah. anti-heroes. Yeah. So why didn't you like him? What was your issue? I just found him a bit boring. You, you found him boring? Yeah. The dude gets into a massive heist and he's boring? Yes, but he's the most boring one out of them. Even the 90-year-old man, he's got more charisma than him. Goodness. All right. Each their own. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I think he was particularly trying to play it a certain way, and I just wasn't quite vibing with that. Like, I don't think it was him. I think it was intentional. I just wasn't overly keen on yeah. that way. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't mind him at all. I didn't think he was boring. Um, I was always interested in his motivations and what's going on in his head because he didn't, he doesn't necessarily say a lot about himself or what's going on. Over a lot in general. In his head. Yeah. And so I, I kind of like that. I mean, that that's the one thing that I liked in um, The Man Who Wasn't There from Billy Bob Thornton's performance. Mm. Like to do that sort of thing, I think there's a, there's a very important skill set that an actor has to be able to to maintain in order for it to be believable. Um, but uh, no, I, I get it, I guess. <clears throat> I do like how reserved the editing is. Uh, it's not flashy. It's It lays it out it's, and it's concise. Um, and I, I know most people won't ever really pay attention to that kind of shit, but being an editor, it's something that I typically am able to sort of pick up on and enjoy. Um, you know, much like when we watched the red house, uh, you know, in that third act, you can kind of tell that it's, it it gets a little long. They, they should have picked up the pace. I mean, with this film, I thought that they, they kept the pacing pretty well, uh, set out and they're very reserved with their editing. They didn't do any sort of flashing, flashy stuff. Yeah. It didn't um, need it, did it? No, I don't think so. I think I think this is this is very much about telling this story in a in a visual way, but by what you see on screen, not not by anything else. Um, and I think that's really apparent with the DP and the and the editing. There's another great scene that I do like with uh, in regards to the uh, director of photography um, when um, I can't think of his name, but the uh, the guy that initiates this whole heist that wants to steal the the jewelry. Oh, the old man. Yeah, yeah. When he when he gets out, he takes the cab to the bookie or whoever this guy is, and gets out of the cab. And there's this long hallway, sort of frame within a frame shot, and it's silhouetted sort of thing. And there's like multiple people in the hallway, and it's all claustrophobic feeling and whatnot. I just really love that sort of up close and personal. If something happens in here, it's not going to go well, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just it really it was really cool how they did that. Um, kind of made made it feel very dangerous because you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you know that this is a pretty seedy, seedy thing about to go down. Um, so certain things like that just really serve the movie well. Uh, but although when he does go into that room, I did catch, and I don't know if this is something anybody else would really catch, but on the ceiling, uh, there's some film equipment there's a film light and it's got, it's either a gel or probably not a gel, but uh, some sort of diffusion over it um, that you can see up hanging from the ceiling. And that's one thing that I noticed about these older films. You don't typically see mess ups like that. Um, and this, I think this is the first time that I recall seeing a piece of film equipment 
on set. Oh. And it's it it I'm not sure if it's meant to be disguised with the the diffusion in front of it or if it was they're just like nobody's gonna know what it is, so who cares or what the deal is. Um, but it's hanging up um, you know, on the ceiling and you can see it. So if you, you know, have an eye for anything like that, you'll it's not hard. I'm to, rubbish at spotting stuff like that. Yeah. It's funny because uh, while we were doing the documentary Millennium After the Millennium, there's you know a, a good amount of footage from the actual show that's cut into the documentary, and there's several scenes that while I was cutting, I found crew members standing around like on the really? side of the frame, or yeah, or C stands or lights or certain things. Uh, there's there's several of uh, Frank Black's flashes that he has where you can see like C stands and random other things uh, in the images when you slow them down. Um, And then there's this one particular scene where the millennium group is meeting in this like warehouse and the color correction is as such where it's very film noir. Um, It's very dark and moody, but off to the side as the camera is pushing in, you see a crew member standing there. And as the camera pushes in, you see him move out of the way and it's supposed to be like so dark on the side that you can't see him or he's not even supposed to be there, obviously. But um, but you can see him there. And I think he's wearing shorts or something like that. It's just like, very it's film just noir. Funny. Yeah, very film yeah. noir in my shorts <laughs> and my trainers right. and my cap. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, TV is, is it's a different beast because they got to shoot those in like eight days, like a whole – basically a whole movie in eight days. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit different and like, yeah. But, uh, you know, something like this, uh, you know, a big Hollywood film directed by a well-known director. Um, it must have just been one of those things where like, ah, nobody's going to know what that is. And then then came along Jason Morris to just... I ruined it for everybody. Ruined it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you didn't like uh, Dix. You don't like Sterling Hayden. Do you like him in other stuff? I do like him in other stuff. I just didn't particularly like this character. I just thought he was the most depressing thing walking around that I'd seen in quite a long time. And then I watched the Billy Bob Thornton film um, and he won that title. But I didn't, yeah, I just didn't jar with him because that's why I said, like, it's not the actor. He's, he's obviously playing it a particular way. And I just wasn't really keen on that sort of stoic mindless yeah. way. Of course not. You only like it when it's uh, attractive people that you do like. <laughs> exactly. If we could get more of those, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Should have been Guy Pierce with blonde hair. Should have been what Guy Pierce. What were they Pierce. thinking? God. <laughs> only I had a time machine. Oh, my God. Oh, jeez. I could take him with me because he was in that, so. <laughs> <laughs> could, could have had the Morlocks doing the heist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have to fix it, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, even though you didn't like him, I really, I, I thought he was great. Um, but I particularly liked Gus. I think he was a real standout actor and character. Yeah, I uh, like James him. Whitmore. I thought just was just ra- rather good. So I don't know, and I, uh, I'm gonna keep an eye out for him and other stuff. I feel like I don't know why, but was he was he the actor that has the plate in his head in Blue Dahlia? Oh, interesting. For some reason, 
uh, quite a similar style, but I don't think it was the same guy, but I can see where you're coming from with that. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, it just like kind of popped into my head that I was thinking that was him. Um, uh-huh. I'm going to look it up right now because I'm curious, but uh, I really enjoyed him. I thought he was great. Gosh, he was in a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of stuff. I guess, I guess not because he actually didn't start until late 40, uh, 1949 was, oh, this is only a partial filmography, but I think Blue Dahlia would be on here. Oh, he's in, he's in the movie Them. You'll like that because it's about bugs. Yeah. No, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You got to check it out now. Bugs taking people's eyeballs. Not a thing for me. My goodness. He kept acting into the 2000s. That's why I was, why I was so wasn't responding to you because I was looking at it. It's like, wow. He's in The Majestic. That's such a good movie. I'm sure. So um, anyway, sorry. Well. We're wasting wasting so much time <laughs> looking yeah, up James Whitmore. Clicking. He's that good in the movie, though. <laughs> um, you know, even with all those positives that I point out, uh, the big problem with the movie, in my eyes, is that it doesn't do anything new. There's nothing... That's they don't push the envelope in any way other than it's just very solid direction and cinematography. The acting is is good. Everything works. Oh, the killing. Sorry to interrupt. That's what I was trying to find. That, that film that I like still in Hayden in. Oh, okay. The killing. I found it. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I've seen that one. I'll have to look at it. Yeah, it's quite good. But uh, yeah, I don't think that they did anything that was like sort of pushing the envelope other than a few camera tricks, you know, like the rack focus and split focus, Uh things like that. Um, So I think that's really the film's main uh, negative is that they just he wasn't really trying to push the envelope. But that's again, that's okay. That's what they set out to make and they made it very well. Uh, And as such, I think that's that's all right. Um, I, I just I guess for John Huston, I expected I expected a little bit more, I guess. I just found it a bit long. I didn't. I didn't find it long. It's interesting. I, li- I liked all of the high stuff and even, you know, going over the top and going into that much detail. I still liked all that. And I liked the char- mm-hmm. character stuff beforehand. The problem I had with it was after they did the heist, that to me was just getting a little bit monotonous and ridiculous. Like, I mean... He's been shot and he's bleeding everywhere. They're just sat having a chinwag. This happens about four times. And then it <laughs> takes him, he goes on a little last minute journey for about, well, we don't even know. It could have been three days. It could have been three minutes because we don't know where they are <laughs> to go and find his farm. But that yeah. it just seems so long considering how much focus was spent on the Dick's character. Like they killed the others. One one was suicide. The other guy got caught. They were all done really fast, but the Dick's character just seemed to just get pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And then, I don't know, it just didn't quite... I would rather have them all had an equal amount of time, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And I think part of that comes from you not actually liking the Dick's character. I think if you had liked him, well, maybe, yeah. uh, it might've, it might've worked a little better for you in that sense. But I, I get that, especially if you just don't like the character. Like I did like that he was trying to get to his farm though. I thought that was, but like the whole thing where they stop at the doctors, I thought was unnecessary. Well, I mean, yeah, it was, but that's the whole reason why it's in there because it is unnecessary and he loses time because of it. 
Um, and that something like that probably is the reason why he dies because they go to a vet <laughs> instead of a doctor. <laughs> um, you know, she's worried about him, obviously. It just, it, it feeds more into their character development, I guess, more. Yeah. But you have to, again, you think you just really have to like the character in order to buy any of that or care that it's happening. Because if you don't like dicks, then yeah, you're, you're not going to give a shit. I thought it was nice when he when he collapsed on the floor to finally die. When he dies? Not wound that had taken like every ounce of blood in him, um, right. but not enough to stop him from driving a car. Um, and then the horses kind of like all came to him. I thought that was nice. That was a nice little image to end on. Like back yeah. where he was. He made it back to where he wanted to find. I'd just rather it. It hadn't taken that long to get there. Yeah, it definitely gave him good closure. Um, yeah. You know, unfortunately, he doesn't get to, you know, spend the rest of his life. Well, I guess he did spend the rest of his life there. <laughs> but- Can you imagine being the person who bought that farm with that woman showing up? Like, there's a dead guy in your field. <laughs> I don't think she would tell anybody. I think she just, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go back to the car. <laughs> <laughs> I was never here. <laughs> <laughs> Where are those diamonds at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, I didn't talk about the surprise cameo. You kept it hidden so, very well. Yeah. So our main bad guy, the guy who wants the, the I guess he's the fence. The guy that was going to buy the diamonds and then screws him over. Um, doesn't have the money. He was going to uh, steal the diamonds from, you know, strong arm these guys. His girlfriend, who ends up being his alibi in the film. Because, of course, you know, all 60-year-old, 70-year-old men who are married and are wealthy have these young 20-something girlfriends. Um, His girlfriend is Marilyn Monroe, which I was really surprised to see. I had to pause it. I had to pause it. Yeah. That's not Marilyn. That's Marilyn Monroe. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. and uh, it I, apparently this was her first significant role. Um, I guess maybe she just done little. I mean, this is actually a really small part. Yeah. But it does give her something to do, and it is a significant role, especially for you know the this particular character uh, for the I can't think of his name, but the fence, the guy that's going to buy Alonzo. Or pretend to Alonzo. Okay. Uh, so, cause she's his alibi and all that kind of stuff. And she get has to, uh, you know, she rolls over on him, um, just out of fear or whatnot. But, um, yeah, I was pretty surprised to see her in it. Everything else just sort of expectantly, steadily tumbles to conclusion. Yeah. And, and you know, the, I think the, I think the interesting thing overall about it is that they don't just, these people just don't get caught. Oh my God. It's horrible. Well, it happens well, it's, really. Yeah, it, it is. They don't they don't just get caught. And maybe that's the sort of maybe that's you know the takeaway from this movie. This is sort of the um um the lesson to be learned is that they all are done in by their own devices. Mm. I mean they like they decimate themselves. Yeah. <laughs> they, oh yeah. They, they like uh it's particularly, I mean, the stupidity of the um the the man that gets out of prison, the older guy, having this taste for younger females or just women in general, stops at the diner at the end. I mean, he could just very well just leave. keep driving. Yeah, he could have come yeah. got away with it. But his appetite there just gets the best of him, and he's got to sit here and watch this girl. 
And because of that, of course, a couple cops show up and see him and recognize him and he gets arrested. And, you know, I, I just, every, everything like that happens for every character in, in a way they're, they're all, they're all, um, it just feels like they all sort of like can't make good decisions at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's probably why they're in that situation is because they're just not capable of making a good decision. Not necessarily because they're bad people, which I mean, they're, they're thieves, they're bad, um, but they're good in their own way. They're just not capable of making wholesome choices. No. <laughs> in Alonzo should have just sat and played cards with his wife every night and it would have been fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. <It> just, <laughs> he should have. So, yeah, I mean, moral story, no bad deed goes unpunished, I guess, you know. Um, they, do a, they do a fine job of punishing themselves. <laughs> yep. Don't even need the police. Going really. the, yeah. yeah, going through the whole movie pretending like there's a way out and there just, there just isn't. Yeah. And I guess the only person that actually finds a clean exit is the one that shoots himself in the head. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he, he goes out on his own terms. Everybody else doesn't. <laughs> And it, I think because of that, is this, even though this is kind of a glossy movie, I do feel like it's one of the darker film noirs. It, very. It's very dark in that sense. Um, and that kind of makes it, you know, noir at its best. It's, it's mostly, it's mostly all downs. It's, yeah. There, there's not a whole lot in this film that of good that happens. Very, very bleak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very bleak. But then again, I guess some people could argue so is life. So, yeah, it's and again, you know, it's I was quite accurate. Yeah, it's very it, it's very grounded, very realistic in a lot of ways. Yep, you're right. <clears throat> and uh, I guess that's the beauty of it, and and why it works so well for me. I have a feeling you're going to have a slightly different opinion of it overall, but I did enjoy it myself. <clears throat> but all right, we're we are at that time. Um, Everybody in this movie is dead, and uh, <laughs> time to move on. That's it. Let's see how many how many gens we're going to be pouring out for the homies. <laughs> <laughs> um, what you got, Carly? I'm gonna go with seven hmm. because That's a little better than I expected. Yeah, well, I I really like the first half. I like. A lot of things in particular about it, the heist, um, a lot of the other characters, just because I wasn't keen on dicks, I did like a lot of the others. I even like Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. popping up. Um, and I like, I actually kind of like the sort of morbidness of it. It just got even a little bit much for me. Oh, um, and you know what I'm like for just rifling through scripts and killing people. I, mm-hmm. yeah. but it even got a bit much for me. Um, I just, I just got too bored with it towards the end. That yeah. stopped really caring. It's too long for you. Yeah. Just all this, all the character set up, which is a shame because it just kind of, it just fizzled away the more and more I just zoned out. And so I don't care. Yeah. Which is a shame. But yeah. Well, I mean, it's all right. And I mean, it, it makes sense. And, and again, I think it just goes back to not really not liking dicks. If you had liked him, I think all that stuff probably would have been a little bit better for you. But that's understandable. It's it's hard to these movies that are so bleak and so dark sometimes I think to to really find relatability to them sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um and I, I think that could be 
you know, part of the problem, I think, uh, for some people. But um, yeah, when you don't like the lead character, things are going to go downhill. But seven's respectable. I didn't expect that. I thought you'd probably give it more like a five-ish. Well, it wasn't a bad made film. And like I said, there was a lot of positives. If it, it's mm. not, it's not a film where there's just a guy and a girl. There was loads of characters. So me not really liking one, yeah, probably impacted not liking the last act. But there was a, there was a, there was a lot in between that I liked. So mm-hmm. it'd be unfair for me to call it a crap film just just for that because it wasn't. Yeah, fair enough. I'd also bitch at you if you called it a crap film, but you know. Would I ever? Would I ever do such a thing? (laughs) That's not on Facebook Messenger. (laughs) Not to the general public, right? (laughs) Don't want to be receiving hate mail. (laughs) (laughs) I've got enough already. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm going to go slightly higher than you. I'm going to give this movie uh, eight. Oh, I thought you would have gone a little bit higher, to be fair. No, because again, I don't think it pushes the envelope enough. I think it's it's just it's it's a high quality, it's a well made film that I think is shot fairly well. I think that they they luckily enough had enough opportunity or money or time or something in order to pull out a few interesting camera tricks that serve the story, um, and you can tell it's well directed. But other than the actual heist itself. I don't think that they did a whole lot that was new or fresh or interesting enough to give it like a 10 or something like that. I think it's just a well-made film in general. Um, and as such, I think it's, it's rewatchable for me. I would, I would definitely watch it again. This is something I would probably buy to, to, to keep, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy it, but it's not a, like a oh, whole film, it's not uh, it's not a top ten yeah. kind of film for me, but I did like it. I did enjoy it. It's worth watching, in my opinion. Um, it's so bleak and so dark, and um, you know, I think the characters are well drawn out, and the heist itself is well drawn out. The like you mentioned, the interviews, things like that. I think the cinematography is really great. I think they really present the city wherever it might be, and maybe that's the whole point. It could be any metropolitan city, you know, it doesn't matter where, um, it just kind of swallows you up. You're just a number kind of thing. Um, and that's their whole purpose is to get out. At least Dick says. So as such, I don't know. I thought it was uh, well worth the watch, um, and enjoyable, great cast as well. Um, so there you go. Eight gens out of 10 and seven gens out of 10. Not bad. Well, there you have it, guys. The Asphalt Jungle. We hope you guys enjoy watching the movie if you get a chance or if you've already seen it. Let us know what your thoughts are. Um, You can send us a message uh, on Facebook or from our website or on Anchor, wherever you like. You can find us. We're out there. Uh, Leave us a review as well on Apple or wherever it is that you're listening to us from. Um, We want to hear from you guys, all right? Uh, And until next time. Bye-bye. He's looking at you, kid. Thanks for joining us this week on the Speakeasy Noircast. Make sure to visit our website, resurrectionfilms.net, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes 
or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our book, The Dark Side of Acting Up and The Dark Side of Acting Up Volume 2, now available on Amazon. Or you can check out one of our films, also available on Amazon Prime. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Speakeasy Noircast.